Hi, welcome to Where They Are Now and Where We Will Follow, and today's guests are Ellison Adrian, Class of 2017, and John McGreevy, Class of 2010. Both have made great strides in medicine and environmental science, and today they will be speaking on both fields. I hope you enjoy. My name is Ellison Adrian, and I graduated from Elon in 2017 uh, with a, a bio degree. And after Elon, I went to uh, Kiskeya University in Haiti, where uh, I studied um, medicine. And I just finished my clinical rotations um, in St. Mark, Haiti. And now I'm planning to graduate in December. And um, hopefully everything will be um, okay. So graduation won't be postponed. And after that, I'll just be uh, spending a year working for the government. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm John McGreevy, and I graduated in 2010. And I was a bio major. I was also an environmental studies major as well. And from there, I went to Colorado State University, and I got a uh, master's in anthropology, and then I went to the University of Georgia, and I got a PhD in integrative conservation. So yeah, it's kind of an interdisciplinary um, degree that brings together people from both the natural and the social sciences to try to figure out how we deal with these complex problems in the world. And so after that, I was required to and also very happy to work for the government for at least a year because of the fellowship that I had, which is called the Borin Fellowship, which I'm happy to talk more about as well. It helped me get to Haiti and study the local language there. But um, I worked for the National Park Service. I'm based out of Fort Collins, Colorado, but I worked for the Washington office and in the social science program and um, I am the socioeconomic monitoring coordinator. A lot of big government words there, but basically I am the program coordinator for this new and exciting project we have going to 24 parks per year and doing visitor surveys on a number of topics. So that's basically it. Wow, that is an amazing full record. And the tie between anthropology and science deserves to be more acknowledged. What made you become an anthropologist also? Originally, I was just in biology and then my biology professors looked at the research that I wanted to do in Haiti uh, in 2010 and said hey you, this looks a little bit more like things like anthropology and there are elements of environmental studies but that's why then I went on to study anthropology and it's been great. That's amazing now can you guys both give me a rundown on how you crossed paths and how Elon ended up in the mix? I don't know, Alisan, we'll see how versions of the story line up. So I think we first met in 2007. Yes. Um, that was uh, when you first went with Deb um, to Haiti. And at that time, we, we didn't do much in conversing or because I remember um, you were with the optometrist, I believe. I can't remember. Um, but there were yep. eye doctors that were there. And... Um, after that, it wasn't really in 2010 um, when you went back. And at that time, I was a senior in high school. And um, as John just said, he was working um, in 
his uh, research that was looking at how we uh, in Haiti they could use um, solar oven for cooking. And it was during that time, and at that time also I knew just enough English that we could <laughs> we could have a, um, a good conversation. And when we started talking about what I wanted to do and um, looking because I was going to the uh, to university, uh, I'm sorry if there's some noise coming in. Um, yeah, and I was going to the university um, after my high school and. Um, during that time, the earthquake happened in 2010, and then um, we um, we talk and see um, that okay, uh, John told me because everything in Port-au-Prince collapsed during that earthquake, like universities and mostly all the universities in Haiti, and we could say the good ones are in Port-au-Prince. Um, for somebody in the countryside to go to the university, you have to go to Port-au-Prince and when everything collapsed. And then John uh, was telling me that uh, maybe you could um, apply to Elon and I could um, advocate for you and see how you could get accepted into Elon. And he knew that I wanted to be a doctor and he, um, he told me they do not have um, a medical school at Elon, but you could study um, biology and then that would be on the on your path to become a doctor, especially in the US. Uh, there's like um, pre-med and then you go to GameCat and then med school. And then I was like, okay, that sounds nice. And then he told me that, okay, so when I go back and I reach out to people at Elon and then I'll get back to you to see what's possible, what can be done. And when he went back a few months later, um, emailed me about what he's been doing. And also, you know, he, he was talking to um, his aunt Deb that I mentioned earlier um, about that because uh, they were also people supporting me, um, supporting what I wanted to do. And through um, John and then and Deb, so they, they helped me, they reached out to Elon and they emailed me my application form, which I filled out and then sent back. After that, um, I remember my first um, contact or emailing with Elon, it was when they sent me my um, acceptance letter um, via email. They was like, okay, you accepted and they have my contract profile, everything, so I could log in to continue with my applications. First went to Royal Haiti in 2007, like at least I was saying, and I didn't know any Haitian Creole and the vast majority of people in rural Haiti speak just Haitian Creole is sometimes French and uh, in the cities there's a little more French and a little more English um, but it really limited who I could talk to and then when I came back in 2010 I was all by myself for a whole month so that was different I didn't have any English speakers around me except for a fine young gentleman named Elisan who did speak a little bit and I had a little Haitian Creole dictionary and we would talk back and forth and figure things out that way and over time I really focused on learning Haitian Creole he really focused on learning English and um, that helped us to connect better and figure out where our paths were aligning and since then Elisan has helped me either as a research assistant 
or as a co-researcher, co-author on some papers, um, co-presenter at some conferences for years, I guess it's been what, 12 years now, and helped me when I finished my PhD. A lot of the credit goes to him for helping me with that. And even happens to be the godfather of my son. So you could say we've had a, yeah. a, a long and very <clears throat> productive and um, great friendship and also professional uh, career together. Yeah, definitely. That is amazing how one simple meeting led to you guys building each other's careers up and making scientific discoveries and allowing each other to be a part of each other's lives. You met at a really young age for the both of you. Do you think if you went back in time, you would do anything differently about how you met the way you met? I definitely would try to learn the language earlier, um, the language of the rural people. It's, you know, it's hard to learn Haitian Creole sometimes in the United States because there's not a lot of people that speak. There are a lot of people that speak it, but not spread out equally throughout the United States. And there are increasing ways to learn. Um, but really, if you just know English going to some of these countries, you only speak to people that have had the ability to learn English, which that's great that they have had that ability, but the people that are maybe in the needier settings or that don't have their voices heard, don't speak English. And so I wish I had worked harder earlier on to learn Haitian Creole to be able to interact better with the local people. And Elisan really helped me with that so that Throughout my time working in Haiti, I was better able to speak with or speak through Elisan to really get to the bottom of what people are saying. I think that's definitely, there's nothing that I've, I would have changed, but uh, as John said, that I wish we, um, we were able to um, better communicate with um, our languages. So like, me, I know I knew Creole and um, I knew a little bit of English. And John did also amazing with the little um, Creole that he knew and to communicate with other people as well because um, other people which was like, oh, he speaks Creole um, because he would just make the effort of, you know, uh, speaking the few words that he knows with um, the local and that um, they were very happy about that also today. So, oh yeah, he knows Creole as well. And um, that was amazing. Um, definitely with um, the effort that he made and the passion that he had for um, the language as well, yeah. That reminds me of when the earthquake happened and it was funny at the time, it's, you know, it's not, we didn't know how bad it was. There was no self-service out there or anything. We we're both in rural Haiti and it was the first earthquake I felt happen. And then I run out into the middle of just out of the house that I was in and the middle of the field and was like, oh my gosh, I think that was an earthquake. And, but nobody around me spoke any English. So I couldn't get across this idea of earthquake. That's a little bit, you know, kind of counterintuitive to, to get across, difficult to get across without knowing the words. And I remember sitting down next to Elisan and trying to find the word earthquake and it wasn't in the dictionary. And I found shake or something like that. And we finally were like, yes, that's it. That's what happened, you know? And so I was like, well, great. The malaria medicine is not making me hallucinate. There actually was this uh, thing that happened. But um, then the next day we learned how, how really horrible it was. Um, but it was interesting, those first language kind of connections and how that grew over time. And 
then eventually ended up studying disasters together. And that's where that yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and within that chaos, you found a beautiful way to intertwine your lives and become connected. If you guys both went back to school, do you think you would continue with a bio degree? Or do you think you would have done a different degree? Yeah, doc, personally, I would definitely um, do bio again because, you know, as I said, I've always wanted to be a doctor. And um, with um, the biology degree, you know, understanding the basic um, of like physiology, for example, genetics and developmental biology, all of that, that helped me tremendously to um, continue in my field um, to study medicine. So I'll definitely do it uh, again just um, to uh, go to med school. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I certainly would study biology again. And, you know, I seem a little bit, if you look at my resume, a little lost along the way, but I wouldn't say that I was. I, you know, I have degrees in four disciplines now, but even though I'm considered a social scientist, I was first a biology student. And it's really important. Um, I consider myself an interdisciplinary scholar. And I don't want to speak for Elisan, but I think we've seen this along the way a lot, is that when you're trying to study these complex issues that are facing the world, such as we've looked at, you know, tree loss in Haiti, we looked at disasters in Haiti, uh, a little bit, Elisan's done more diseases in Haiti, and then myself and other places too. You know, the more that you have different frames of looking at the world, including biology, the better you can understand what's going on even if it's not the direct thing that you're studying. And so we had this interdisciplinary team, and then also we were interdisciplinary people, interdisciplinary persons, and working together, we were able to look at these complex issues in ways that I think are very important to look at, which is not just through one lens. I appreciate that response from both of you. And it is a beautiful thing to think of, that the study of life is intertwining and it gives us the ability to understand so many things. So John, you work for the National Park Services and Ellison, you as a doctor and a medical professional. Can you guys both speak on how global warming has impacted your careers, either negatively or positively? Well, I'll start just by saying that the PhD work that I did and that Ellison helped a lot on, he was, essential in helping with it it transformed naturally from being about tree loss and tree use to then being about disasters to then being about climate change and so really my phd is in uh, integrative conservation but it looks at the effect of climate change on rural people specifically farmers that were hit by multiple um, extreme weather events and so it really does impact my work. Um, it impacts my degree in that we were there with people that had never, some of them had heard the term climate change before, some of them had not. And that was one of the more interesting aspects was that even these people that had never heard the term before, they were still talking about these changes that were going on. And so the most important changes when I try to bring up a different issue would always come back to this issue of the world is changing, the weather patterns are changing, and this is something that is really affecting our lives. So um, that definitely affected me. Um, Yeah, so one of the main things, if I can um, continue with the um, research we did 
um, before I get to the patients as well. Um, what we notice is that like people, when they're talking and they're like, okay, so we don't have enough, we don't have enough rain. We don't have the same amount of rain we used to have. We don't have it the same time we used to have it. So most of um, Haitians are farmers. So when they're talking about they do not have rain, so that means their crops are dying. So like, you will see some patients are coming also, and then um, they're saying the same thing. And I was like, okay, yeah, so I've heard, I've heard this before. And it's like when we were doing um, research um, and then people were telling the same things. And then people say, okay, so the patients um, last time, so that was an example I gave with the patients who came and it was like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't come earlier to see the doctor because um, I didn't have the money because I only farm and then I lost everything because we didn't have the rain um, to water our garden because the only um, ways from they only count on the rent to um, for irrigation because they don't have an irrigation system and then it was like okay I've heard that before because I know that and the yeah. research we did people complain about that um, so that's one thing but also some people will not come to the hospital at all because um, they don't have the money because they on, the only um, source of income they have is their farms and then um, they do not have enough friends. That's their main complaint is that enough friends, so they don't have money. And it's one of the things that I've heard a lot, and that's kind of like my plan also to reach. That's why I said doing healthcare outreach, as we, I said before to you, Frida, um, is that those people will be the people that need to have um, healthcare professionals reach out to them and to go to their place in the countryside where they are. And that's kind of like one of the missions I've uh, given to myself to see how um, I can help them and also do some healthcare outreach in those, um, in those areas. And it's not gonna be easy, but it's like the climate change just impact their lives um, a lot in ways that we probably wouldn't expect it, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And that you're, you're spot on there, Elisan, with what I was thinking. And in anthropology, um, some scholars say that the Caribbean and even Haiti in particular are the quote, canary in a coal mine of what's happening with the world. And so you see that these folks are so much more closely tied, their daily life, their daily experiences are more closely tied with the weather and the climate of the long term that they're seeing things that are gonna to happen to us eventually. And that kind of leads to my work in the park service a bit. I don't see it as extreme because most of it is not life and death in the park service. Um, but we do see a lot of changes occurring on these lands and some of them a lot faster than other places like Glacier National Park. It's warming at two times the global average. And if you think of the name Glacier, well, it would require having glaciers and there were 150 glaciers in Glacier National Park in 1850, but there's only 25 now. And so you see that, and then you also see that a lot of our parks, so we have over 400 park units, not a lot of people know that. We only have like 60 to 70 national parks, but then a lot of other smaller units, and a lot of them are across the Southwest and the West area. And this past year, they had their 
driest or past 22 years were the driest that have occurred in the last 1,200 years. So you see in different areas, different types of extreme weather occurring, but across anthropologists and other scholars, that's the most agreed upon uh, likely outcome of climate change and most pressing outcome is that there will be more extreme weather events. And we see that in some of the parks that we're looking at to do studies at this next year is I can't say yet what they are, but some of them were hit very hard by the hurricane. Hurricanes are increasing in frequency and intensity and that came across a lot in our research in Haiti. And it's also coming across now in some of these places where we're not able to study because the parks closed down, which obviously that's a less big of an impact than harming lives of you know, thousands and thousands of Haitian farmers, but it's still a concern and should be a concern for what's to come in the future. Um, on a personal note, I mean, I could talk forever on this, I'm pretty passionate about it, but think a question, a way that we can personally move towards dealing with climate change is to stop asking people as much, hey, do you believe in climate change? Or, or do you instead saying, do you understand climate science and what's going on? Because there's really been a consensus across science. And so um, there's also, after seeing the consensus across science, after seeing it affect people in their daily lives. It's not really something that you can believe or not believe in because it's seen, um, but it's a matter of do you understand what's going on and then what do we do to collectively, interdisciplinarily, interdisciplinarily to deal with that? Sorry, I had a question. Perfect. I, and also that's, I mean, that's really amazing to point out. I think, you know, something else is you talked about the glaciers melting and um, you know, with that, the sea levels come to rise. And we also just don't know what gases are trapped in these glaciers. I mean, because they are hundreds of thousands of years old, they have gases yeah. from an environment that we have never lived in. Um, and so seeing how earth is going to change with that and air quality is, is going to be, I mean, insanely crazy. And Along with global warming, COVID has become one of the huge factors that affects a workplace. So can you both speak on how COVID affected you, Elisan, in the medical field, and you, John, in the national parks field? Yeah. Well, really quick, I'll just oh. also say something positive about climate change is I see a lot of people working towards really trying to understand it better and move past that idea that it's a thing you can believe in or not believe in and really look to to work together and you can look no further than the people of rural Haiti to see that because in our research we saw new and innovative ways that these folks bound together and basically lived in houses including one of Elisan's professor's house in in rural Haiti and combined all their resources and really uh, fought to to deal with this problem together. So there are positive stories that come out, you know, there's always what's the tipping point? What's the point where it's gonna to be too much for this adaptation to occur? And hopefully we can learn with the people of Haiti and other folks in, in many different disciplines, like you're saying, we don't know what's gonna come out of the ice. We don't know who will be needed to help solve these problems, but um, the more that we learn across the disciplines is very important. Sorry, I'll get back to your COVID stuff now. Elisan, you probably have more to say. No, no. 
Yeah, so that was very good. And um, um, as you mentioned with um, my professor, and we've seen that a lot of um, places in Haiti as well, when we have natural disasters, um, people come together and bring what they have um, to serve the other people that are less um, fortunate during that disaster. So that's definitely some good thing. Um, we uh, all should learn um, to uh, respond to uh, future events. Um, so I think one of the things that I can see um, that comes to mind exactly now about um, with how COVID um, impact our foundation, the things we've worked together is um, the funding for the high school, you know, during the time when uh, John and I uh, worked together. So there was a high school in my hometown that um, was almost, you know, closed um, because of funding. And then we worked together and with John's uh, family as well. Um, they helped, you know, do fundraising to uh, keep the high school running. And during the COVID, you know, fundraising were, um, was not ideal uh, specifically, you know, you cannot bring people together. And when um, that um, arrived, so we didn't have enough funds. We couldn't do the fundraising we were doing. And now, you know, that's really impacted the progress that we um, did for that school. And now it's again in the brink of closing due to um, lack of funding. That's kind of like some thing we worked on that COVID really impacted that come to mind. I don't know if John wanna say anything or add anything to that. Yeah, I will say that COVID changed, well, changed everything. It changed the world. And some of it's going back to the way that it was, some of it's going to a, a new normal. During the time of COVID, my role began to shift away from Haiti and more towards the US government because of my need to work for the government for at least a year. And so I, I saw less of the impact in Haiti, but heard a lot of it from Elisan. And here in the United States, it was a little bit different when looking at the, sorry, Okay. When looking at the National Park Service, which is what I was looking at on my day today, my new day today, which didn't involve Haiti as much, there were a lot of changes. We saw parks that completely shut down. We saw parks that actually saw increases in the number of people going there because parks weren't shut down and people began to say, hey, we can't recreate indoors. Let's go outdoors. What we really saw afterwards is a surprising boom in visitation the years as COVID started to wane down and hopefully goes away forever, but is waning down still. And part of that being people just having had trips that they set aside that they wanted to go on or realizing that they really love the outdoors and then weren't able to visit some of these places, they really started to appreciate the outdoors more or just to get back to their patterns of going into the outdoors after COVID. So it's kind of counterintuitive and not something that was altogether expected, but in some ways it hopefully brought people closer to nature and 
exposed to seeing that, hey, there's something di different than this daily life that we go through every day. And so I miss, you know, biophilia. I miss going out into nature again. And, and that happened. So. No, it's perfect. And I, you know, that's, that's actually really important to point out. I mean, I, everyone talks about how bad COVID was for, you know, people people and the earth but if you really think about it i mean mass manufacturing stopped for a while you know mm -hmm. uh, air pollution it, it went on a decline for a bit um not even though it wasn't the longest time and and people actually got outside i mean i had friends who hated yeah. camping they never wanted to go out and then they just decided one day that they were off to the mountains and you know i bet that is pretty restorative and funding for our national parks i mean they're important um to maintain and keep going and and funding has been a big issue in both the fields you guys work in in humans and nature so how do you guys think as students professors citizens we can combat the inflation happening in the economy a lot of things um a lot of the times we see organizations or other people who came okay so what um we can do how we can help and um, a lot of the times those things are not sustainable. And then um, they start, for example, they will uh, come and then, okay, so we, just an example. So we build a school here and then you see the school is going for a couple of years. Um, and then later on, um, that school is uh, just is not running. Oh, for example, I, um, there's this, um, man that's from Laiai and then he had people helping with the hospital and then they were um, seeing patients for a couple of years and now um, his hospital is basically just a building not working. So I think as citizen is just to try to see how we can uh, come together and make something um, more sustainable that um, we can help um, um, the people in need, it's just not to solve um, the a problem. For example, with hurricanes, we have a lot of people, the house, houses being destroyed. So they lose, uh, they lose their crops. So it's kind of I've come up with ways that we can uh, help them get seed um, so that they can plant crops again and help them to um, keep their form going, their forms going. So um, for me, I, now I can say, like I said uh, earlier that we, I have the mission, like I give myself to do healthcare outreach is kind of like form a group um, of students that are devoted, that are passionate about um, seeing the less unfortunate people um, of Haiti get uh, healthcare so that they can help with fundraising. Um, they can help with also with education in any way um, they can so that they can make a real impact in the lives of um, the people here in Haiti. So that would be something that would be amazing if we can have some sort of partnership um, with um, Elon or even Elon Health Science Schools um, so that if they have, for example, they have equipment that or um, if they can provide 
equipment for a clinic in Haiti. As I don't know if I mentioned that to Frida earlier that I've been um, doing um, mobile clinics uh, for almost a year um, in Nyai and other places around around um, St. Mark where I am. And sometimes we don't have materials like um, Sphygma Manomere, uh, you know, those stuff that we need just to control um, to take the blood pressure. So those are stuff that somebody can donate one. So that would be um, meaningful to us here. Sorry, I know I said a lot. Um, uh, I'm sorry, but yeah, that's kind of like what comes to mind. That's great, Alison. I, I mean, you're the, really the person to talk to about this because of your lived experience at seeing it in Haiti. The, if we're talking about helping abroad, one thing I would say, even if we're looking at beyond abroad is to have this change in mindset a little bit that we want to grow ourselves with a lot of breadth. So we want to learn a lot of different points of view, learn a, a, as much about the world, soak it in different points of view, whether that's um, culturally or with different disciplines and academics or spiritualities, that sort of thing, learn different ways of viewing the world. But when it comes time for action, I have seen the most success when people focus narrowly. So using their breadth of knowledge to focus on a narrow thing. And the quick example of that would be, people often come to Haiti, myself included, saying like, oh my gosh, I, we could fix that, we could fix that, we could fix that. And people make a lot of promises. And so there's a lot of promises made in Haiti. And there's a lot of rundown signs from nonprofits that were short-lived and gone very quickly. And so just keeping in mind, as Eliot Salon was saying, the, the sustainability standpoint. So can this be sustained for the long term? What am I promising in terms of funding? And will I still be able to do that 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And thinking about it more as a partnership, which I believe Elisan said too, rather than just a one-off type funding type thing. Um, and we we had that partnership going already led by my aunt early on through the Catholic Church, and um, which to some might seem like an odd place, but there was no proselytizing going on, anything like that. It was just that the church to church connection was a way to get people that were staying in these organizations for a long time. And they stayed together and still work together. I've um, worked with this connection as like in recent years, but hope to get back to it as things kind of cool down professionally. And then also um, with the current situation in Haiti. Yeah, that is truly important to point out. And I know both of you guys are religious along with scientists. So can you talk about the intersection of science and religion? If there's any conflicts you face internally or externally, or how you benefit from it in your day to day life? Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, I saw many different types of church groups in Haiti, and there's a whole range. And you'll see that in every walk of life, whether it's scientists, whether it's politics, whether it's you know your system of belief, there's a range of how people decide to 
have their point of view and either impose that on others or not. And what I appreciated about the program that we went through was that there was no intention of proselytizing and there was no separation of who was helped, you know, and, and then moving forward into my career as an anthropologist, I went to all sorts of services, including voodoo ceremonies, Catholic churches, Baptist churches, all of the above. And there's a separation there. There's one, you know, that I have my own personal beliefs. And then I have my job as an anthropologist, a scientist, to look at this through a more objective lens. Where religion first came into this in probably the most significant way was that it was my reason for pursuing this type of passion. I'm not saying non-religious people don't have things that push them in that direction. I think that some of the most passionate people I've met are also some of the most passionate atheists I've met. And that's great. But for me, that was what was pushing me this direction of looking internationally to looking at doing something that was was difficult um, to, to spend time in a culture that I didn't really know and try to figure out what issues they were dealing with and then if and how we could help work on them together. So I've heard from anthropologists that they were really surprised I was a Christian. And I've heard from Christians that they were very surprised I was an anthropologist or a biologist or all the different titles that you can choose. But they're, I don't think they're as incompatible as a lot of folks seem to think that they are. There are levels of, say, the way that a faith is used, a system of belief is used that I've seen as detrimental in an international setting. And I will say that I've seen that both from Christian groups, certainly, but also have seen that from non-Christian groups. And I'll speak to say the proselytizing of certain types of business or coming with an agenda that's very short term and trying to get people to implement that and then leaving. And I see that as kind of similar. So I've seen some business groups come into Haiti, say, hey, this is the next big thing. You need to take on this, remove your old system, your cultural way, your culturally historic way of doing things. And now this is the new way you should do it, leaving and then letting it unfold, which ultimately doesn't go very well. So some of the things that are done with the best intentions, whether that's from a a faith point of view, or even from just not a faith point of view, from an atheist point of view, can have negative consequences. And I think what separates out is that being able to remain humble and recognizing that your point of view is not the only point of view, and that there are different ways of equally valid ways of viewing and approaching the world, and that everybody should be heard in that is an important step and a humble step, but one that's important if you want to be able to hopefully produce good long-lasting things in the world. Yeah, I completely agree. Do you have anything to add to that, Elison? Um, yeah, so not really, but I just want to say that for me personally, I've raised um, a Christian, specifically Catholic, and I understand that uh, my faith has taught me to do good, and just I use my scientific knowledge to do good, and it's there's not a time that I come into conf in, uh, you know, internal conflicts um, to um, what I'm doing and how I understand science. So I just uh, make sure that I use my knowledge, my scientific knowledge to do um, what, what I see, what I understand is the best um, for the people I'm serving. 
And it is important to acknowledge as scientists that you can practice your faith in whatever you believe in and also practice science itself and use it as your fuel or not practice faith and fuel science. Now, John, with your experience in Haiti and Ellison, your experience in America, you guys have lived two different lives, kind of swapped, basically. Can you talk about your experiences in both places and how they have impacted you? For me, going to the United States has impacted my life in a very, very positive way. Um, I could say, you know, it's not... It's not easy as a young Haitian to say that, uh, okay, so I went to the US, I got a degree in the US and then I come back to Haiti. Um, during my time in the US, I think I become more um, self-awareness. Um, so, so now it's just like, okay, so I need to know who I am and where I am um, and why I am there. And it was one of the things that kind of fueled me to um, stay focused on my studies and, you know, there could be um, a lot of things, but um, a lot of bad things, I would say, with um, while you're a young um, Black man in a, um, in a very well-off college in the U.S., there are so many things happening, but um, going to the U.S. with a purpose and then having people that or in front of me that I take as my whole model um, to learn from. Um, so that helped me to stay focused and um, be um, where I am today. And, you know, a lot of people I met also in the U.S. and they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, oh, you're going to be, you're going to be great. You're going to do this. And those kind of like stuff that also like little, as little as they could be, but, you know, you have people that believe in you. You have people that uh, cheering for you. So those are kind of like things that fueled me and helped me to, um, I could say at some point to become um, who I am today. So it's definitely changed my life because if I stayed in Haiti, who knows? Um, I know I always um, wanted to be um, a doctor, but that probably uh, would not happen if I didn't have the help that um, I needed and Going to the U.S. definitely helped me um, to kind of like really understand what I wanted to do and then see if this is the right path. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, you know. It's like we got, we switched positions in a way at various points along our journey. And for me, coming from the United States, a place where a lot of people, especially myself, thought, we really know exactly what we're doing and um, the best way to approach things. Haiti was very humbling to me over time, if not at first. At first, there were a lot of things that I did learn. I definitely learned to appreciate things a lot more that we have in the United States, but it goes further than that. And I, I wanna call up the Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't know if you've heard of this, um, it's something that might take a quick internet search for anyone listening to just see this graph. And it, it's a, a basic graph where over time on the left, you have confidence and then going across the bottom, you have wisdom. And so when you have less wisdom and get a little bit more, you get to this peak 
that some people call Mount Stupid, where you think you know everything and you're really confident about that. And I think after learning initially a lot about international development or even before that, just being an American, some of my views were pretty strong and I, too strong because I didn't have enough knowledge of the way that the wider world worked. And then going to Haiti, I think it's easy to maintain that. And it was for me for a while that, hey, this is what's going wrong and this is how to fix it. In particular, I'll throw myself under the bus for saying, hey, Haitians are destroying their environment by cutting down trees. And because of that, we need to plant more trees and teach them how to better treat their environment. But boy, I could not be more wrong in terms of uh, then with my graduate degrees, looking through the history of Haiti, seeing when this deforestation took place, seeing the colonial impact on deforestation, seeing the international impact on deforestation, and recognizing these things, these narratives as false narratives. And that really became part of what ultimately was my dissertation for my many, many years, the capstone of my many, many years of schooling was that the world is presented to us in very simple ways that we can easily digest. And that seemed like the problem is very simple. And we first learned those, and I first learned those such as like, and I'm, this is not what I believe now, but uh, the false narrative that, you know, um, folks in Haiti or similar countries, they don't know how to use their natural resources. And then the other false narrative being, oh, well, disasters just happen to harm these poor countries and it's just random. But in reality, um, what we then learn, I learned over time from the people of Haiti is that that's not the case. They know more about their land than I ever will about my own. They really care about their environment than, you know, I care about my environment too, but it's their livelihood. It's what they have. And then that disasters don't strike randomly. There's a reason behind and it gets more complex than we probably have time for why certain areas are more harmed by disasters than others. And that's why we call them now social ecological disasters, not natural disasters, because of their combination of social, economic, international things that interface with the environmental world. And I don't know if I'm getting too deep here, but basically all that leading to these disasters occurring and part of that is climate change. And so I think bringing it all together, Haiti has really humbled me, but also in that humbling, once I went through that, they call it valley of despair at the bottom where I was like, okay, now I know nothing. Everything that I thought that I knew is not true. Then slowly you get this increase in knowledge where you learn more and more and more. And so that's why, like I was encouraging earlier to study different types of knowledge, to different types of spirituality, different ways of looking at the world, different countries. And that really helps us to become more humble people that are able to understand that there's stuff we just don't know. And I'll just end with a quick story, if that's okay, about this is you asked um, Frida about science in the different countries. And I'll say there's a lot more um, openness to talking about things like climate change in rural Haiti, and that's one topic. But one of the major things I saw was that science could get misused very easily, uh, and not by the local people, but um, by outsiders coming in and they, that, that don't recognize the power behind the words that they have. And you know, coming in saying, I'm this white scientist or I'm this outsider scientist, 
And Elsa and I saw that in the lakes near the town where we did a lot of our research and that there was an, I went to a conference with the ecologists that studied there and I was super interested to hear everything that they were talking about. There was a lot of biological stuff that I learned at Elon and it was great. Everything was going well. He had so much great data. We only studied for two weeks at these lakes and about how they were polluted. And then the last final slide was, and now to make this better, we need to kick all the Haitians that live around the lake off of their property. And so just showed how, to me, there can be a narrow-minded viewpoint of, hey, I'm doing science in another country. I know better than the people of that country. I'm going to make this really, this really big claim for what should be done that I wouldn't make in my own country. And also that isn't really founded on any sort of social science. And so there was no talking to local people. That's what was decided. And I talked with this gentleman for a long time and his team to try to get him not to bring this to the Haitian government, which is what he said he was going to do this proposal. Um, and I hope it wasn't brought to the Haitian government. I've been trying to read up more about it. I haven't seen much on that, but just an example that words have power and people have different amounts of power privilege the way, depending on how the wider world sees them. And so an outsider coming to a different country, you have an obligation to make sure that what is coming out is not going to adversely affect people in that country. And even with, I'm sure this guy had the best intentions of, you know, quote, saving the environment or quote, saving the world, at what, for what purpose and for who was that for? And um, honestly, that's, it reminded me of looking at myself at the beginning of the journey, my journey working in Haiti, where I thought that I knew better than everybody else that was there because I had studied biology. But reality, I didn't know the lived experience of Haitian folks. And thank you to Elisan and for him allowing me to be humbled a few times. Um, I think that we created some good work together and I hope that it helps to do some good maybe and will help in the future. And I speak a lot, I realize. Of course, and I really appreciate, you know, um, you know, working with you. It was so easy, just, you know, you were ready to, um, to learn the culture. And, you know, a lot of times um, some people would not, you know, accept all the, all the thing I've said also to just like, okay, this is how we do this here. This is how we say this, you know, all of that. Um, you were very humbling to just, you were ready to learn. And man, I'm glad I could definitely just help a little bit um, with that. Yeah. It's really great to acknowledge how going through different walks of the earth has impacted you today. And with you, John, how Eurocentric view became humbled in the Haitian culture because you realized that there's so many things that we look upon differently and how that is not necessarily the best thing. I appreciate talking to you both and for the last question I want to leave with you is what piece of advice could you give a student today if you could? Because for me um, learning medicine in Haiti um, it's been very, very challenging with, you know, everything that's been happening. School has stopped a few times, you know, with COVID. There's so many times I could just say, okay, um, I should probably take a break and do something else because I definitely could 
um, go in a different path um, and do something different. But I knew what I wanted and I knew what I needed to do to get there. I stayed um, focused on that and um, just check every time to see where I am like, for example, I know um, we have the protests in the streets, you know, school has stopped a few, um, for a few days and I'm like, okay, I could go some, uh, do something else, but my goal is to be a physician and to be a physician, I just need to go to med school. No matter what happens, I will stay focused on that and work um, hard towards it. So anything you want to do, um, even getting a degree, um, it's just working, working hard and, just know it, this is what you want to do and you will not let anyone else stop you from doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Elisan. And I'll say learn from others, other people like Elisan who taught me so much and the other people of Haiti and that you're not going to be able to solve every issue, but being well-versed in different ways of thinking. I know I've hammered this home a little bit across the talk that we've had, but across disciplines, cultures, belief systems, that can help you to better understand this increasingly complex and interconnected world that we have. And so those tool sets are quite valuable and to remain humble when you learn each new one that it's okay to say I was wrong before and that I'm adapting and, and learning. Yeah. Thank you both for letting me interview you. I really enjoyed this, and I hope to hear from you more about the journeys that you will face involving Haiti and medicine and America and the national parks. Thank you, listeners, for listening to where they are now and where we will follow, and I hope you have a great day.